there's this whole thing of like, we are beings that we don't know ourselves. And I do think that machines are beings, but they do operate in a different way. There's, of course, them being onto themselves, like beings of their own logic and density and reactions, actors in the world. I think that to some degree, we, we always relate to everything through our own system. But then the only way we can really be in connection with others is by accepting the fact that our system is not autonomous like we are not in command and that not being in command is the way to really be at least in some way connected to whatever is out there in the world. And that also goes for machines because metals and electricity and everything that makes a machine, the resonances that come from their action, they're all part of that being and they affect the world just as we do. This is AI Murmurings, a podcast exploring intersections of contemporary art and artificial intelligence. I'm Carolyn Strauss, director of Slow Research Lab, a multidisciplinary research and curatorial platform based in the Netherlands. Conversations here focus on slow approaches to creative practice that we believe can awaken latent potentials for AI that are murmuring just under the surface. This new season of the podcast is made possible by a grant from the Resonance Foundation, a philanthropic organization in Southern California that seeks to advance, communicate, and encourage new perspectives through the creative process. Learn more at theresonancefoundation.org. Today on the podcast, I'm really pleased to welcome Pia Lindman, an artist and researcher who works with performance art, installation, architecture, painting, and sculpture. Some listeners of this podcast may remember the public sauna that she installed in the courtyard of MoMA PS1 as part of the Greater New York Exhibition in the year 2000. And others may remember the three years she spent as a research fellow at MIT in the Center for Advanced Visual Studies and as artist-in-residence at the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. Besides various art-related residencies and academic appointments, her work has been exhibited and or performed widely, including at the 32nd Sao Paulo Biennale, the Kai Art Center in Tallinn, Hakave in Berlin, and the Hayward Gallery in London. And next year, in 2024, She'll be one of three artists representing Finland at the Venice Biennale. There is much more to this truly impressive individual, and there's lots to talk about. So, Pia Lindman, I'm really pleased to welcome you to AI Murmurings. Thank you. Thank you for the introduction. Well, now that I've made that introduction, is there anything you'd like to add to it right now? Uh, maybe the... The recent seven years that I have spent quite a bit of time working with the, the Arctic region, starting from Finland and Iceland and then kind of 
visiting different locations in the Arctic as it is experiencing this radical, dramatic transformation due to climate change. Yeah. And as a kind of almost like a barometer for the rest of the world and as a, a microcosm for all kinds of geopolitical climate. Loss of biodiversity and uh, pollution, global pollution is huge. Uh, it's mm -hmm. impacting uh, uh, especially Greenland a lot, which is surprising mm -hmm. for many. But because of the jet streams, a lot of the heavy metals are yeah. ending up on Greenland. Yeah. So your career as an artist has spanned three decades. Could we say that? Maybe. maybe uh, 35, maybe. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And the work actually, even over that entire period of time to today, I say it's sort of situated between the body, space, memory, the environment. It concerns and entangles the human and the more than human. And more recently, as we'll shortly get into sort of the unseen or the undetectable or the previously the as yet not conscious, I think is how I heard you once put it. But I was thinking as an intro to that, and maybe it's interesting for the listener to hear about where you are joining me from today and how the place you choose to live and how you live there on a daily basis is a way of living through that complexity of those things I just mentioned. Well, that is very well put. That's exactly how I'm trying to live. <laughs> yeah, I live in Finland now. I returned after almost 20 years abroad uh, and um, <clears throat> I found a, a group of uh, friends with whom uh, we began building um, a village of our own that is uh, based on sustainability, both in ecological terms, in terms of uh, how we build, with what materials we build, using recycled materials and natural materials, mm. something that we can find in the ground, basically, clay, straw, uh, mm. etc. And also sustainable in a sense of, of social relations and means of production. Mm. So we try to really uh, create that I wouldn't want to say utopia, but more like an experimenting lab for mm -hmm. how people could live yeah. without adding to this crisis. And also, you know, really being gentle with each other because we still have to live in this world and we have to follow the laws and regulations. So how do we do that? Uh, I mean, I just thought about it this morning, how important for my life right now is that mm. I'm in a house that has no toxins, mm. has no synthetic materials, mm, and I am eating food from my own soil. Just the fact that I can mm -hmm. harvest and eat what, what I have been growing in mm. my garden, mm. it, it just is so essential to uh, not only well-being, but really health, like in a, in a bigger way. And I know there's a lake there that you bathe in. So immersing yourself in many different ways and layers in the landscape. That is true. Amazing. Thank you. It is amazing. Yeah. Um, a serious effort to investigate how to live now. 
mm-hmm. in a way that is good. Yeah. I actually wanted to start out by talking about this main focus of your research investigations and your work in recent years, something you call the subsensorial. You define it as a realm where molecular processes and micro messaging between cells, matter, and energy within and outside living bodies meet with a mind's imagination. And, and this idea that the sub in subsensorial refers to realities we cannot sense and the necessity of finding ways to build relations with them. Yeah. What you describe is in one or two sentences really trying to encompass this big, big realm yeah. of experience Yeah, that also pertains to materiality at the same mm-hmm. time as it pertains to things we cannot see mm-hmm. and think of as not material, but actually can also be very, very material indeed, such as electromagnetic signals. Um, our nervous system is electricity. We can't mm-hmm. see it, but it is material. So there are yeah. lots of things that are packed into that sentence. And if I would begin to somehow unravel that, I would start with simply how um, how you feel mm. and how you can grasp and see what it is that you feel. Mm. Um, I think that one of the sort of most vivacious moments of this was when I I was very sick with mercury poisoning. I didn't know at the time that that was what it, what the problem was, but I had really, really big problems with my digestion. Eventually, I had problems with cognitive capabilities. I became very sensitive to things. Mm, yeah, this was how many years ago? Because this kind of is what set you off along this trajectory, actually. Yes. It started around 2004 after I had been to Mexico City and and was infected by the bacterial infection in the intestines. Mm. And that sort of launched, that sort of triggered the whole body to kind of start Mm. to unravel because of um, lack of appropriate immune system, basically. Autoimmune reactions, of course, this is kind of a disease of our times because um, of so many toxins in the air, in the soil, in the water, in everything. Heavy metals, especially, they affect Mm. your nervous system and especially mercury affects your autoimmune system. So this is a very common problem nowadays and symptoms can be so many different kinds and it's only when you start to form a full picture of what's going on in in your body that you start to realize that, oh, okay, maybe this is the root cause of the ailments you have. But in any case, once I was experiencing this sort of hypersensitivity, as we call it. I remember walking on the street in Cambridge, Massachusetts, going from CSAIL from the computer science intelligence lab to my studio. Everything's just sort of falling into my system and being too much. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a long journey to come out of that and come into a situation where you can just sort of start understanding that, oh, here are impulses that are coming. They can be chemical. They can be electromagnetic. Right. Basically, all the impulses are always a combination of these things. Yeah. And you always have emotional reactions to whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And I would say that 
when I'm describing what sensorial is, it, it comes out of that process of myself realizing it. Mm. And then I was uh, finding all kinds of techniques with the help of many different kinds of healers and practitioners mm-hmm. um, that in different ways help me approach this and look mm-hmm. at it and understand it. Mm-hmm. It's not about unraveling or deconstructing in this kind of classic way that we might mm-hmm. think about it, where you kind of separate things from each other. It's more like understanding the totality and the different lines of energies and events mm-hmm. that go into it and then be friends with that. Well, that's exactly what I was just thinking as you were talking about it, because the subsensorial is beyond the capabilities of our sensory equipment. You talk about it in terms of soil and plants and rocks and atmosphere and uh, various forms of energies, like you mentioned, like electromagnetic resonances, radiations, electricity, chemical movements, all these things, which, you know, for any listeners who are not aware, they are around us, they're within us, they're moving through us. And so on the one hand, the subsensorial produces a deeply embedded environmental awareness. Yes. And having that, I mean, for you, it has to do with belonging. It's also, it gives us a really deep and clear and, and much clearer sense of our belonging in the world amidst yeah. all these other entities. That is absolutely true. It's easy to say that if I go into an environment where there are toxins, it punishes me immediately. You know, like in 15 minutes, I get a migraine headache because of mycotoxins. This deeply embedded awareness of the environment, it's more about like, okay, my reaction is not anymore that when I go into a room and there's mycotoxins in there, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe you guys are living here. You know, that kind of thing. More like, ooh, okay, we have these guys in here. And then let's say I can be here now for 30 minutes and then I'm just going to leave the room. (laughs) If anything, it has taught me that. It has taught me mm, humility and patience with me being somewhere. (laughs) Mm. And that way that then that can give an interface Mm -hmm. to whatever is there Mm. that creates more information for both of us, is more communicative, finds more balance. But, you know, I do have to leave the space at some point. Yeah, sure. And that's healthy. We all have to take care of ourselves in those ways. Yeah. So you've basically cultivated a number of different tools for sensing your way into different constellations of relations. Yes. That makes you much more, you know, also agile and able to navigate the complexity of the world. And why I want to talk about it here on a podcast that's exploring as yet untapped or unimagined even potentials of and for with artificial intelligences is you've asked this question, what role does or can the subsensorial realm play in the formation of our human consciousness? So if we're talking about machine intelligence Mm. or this still distant fantasy of machine consciousness, Could it be meaningful for us as humans and for machines to be listening and learning from these expressions of the subsensorial? And Mm. what would that look like? 
I have one thought that just came into my mind just now. Um, it's not like my favorite quote, but it is a quote that has existed for a long time and it probably carries some meaning for many. And that is to Andrew's dream of sheep when they go to bed. Mm. No? Yeah. And my question is that do humanoid robots have mitochondria? Mm. And why is it mitochondria more interesting to me than, than any other? It is because mitochondria are maternal lineage. They are autonomous. They, are, they have a different DNA than mm. we do. They are entities that live in us in complete mm. interaction. And they are essential for our metabolism. Mm. And they're, they're, I don't think that there is in fully understood like what everything they carry with them, what, what everything comes from with that lineage and, and what what do they affect? Like, I'm pretty convinced that they have a lot to do with your moods and your feelings mm. because of how they uh, affect your metabolism. Yeah, right. Yeah. There's this whole thing of like, we are beings that we don't know ourselves. And I do think that machines are beings, but they do operate in a different way. There's, of course, them being onto themselves, like beings of their own um, logic and density and reactions, actors in the world. I think that to some degree, we, we always relate to everything through our own system. But then the only way we can really be in connection with others is by accepting the fact that our system is not autonomous like we are not in command and that not being in command is the way to really be at least in some way connected to whatever is out there in the world. And that also goes for machines because metals and electricity and everything that makes a machine, the resonances that come from their action, they're all part of that being and they affect the world just as we do. come back to talking about humanoid robots, machines, artificial intelligences. I want to just stay on one thing relating to the subsensorial, which is really important for us to talk about, and that is healing. Mm. You talked about how you learned about the subsensorial realm through your own experiences with different kinds of healers and healing modalities, and you yourself are, and very unapologetically so, a healer, a practitioner of healing that works across various modalities, both traditional and contemporary. And then the subsensorial is sort of facilitated by practices of healing, also facilitating practices of healing. And part of it is that you refer to these healing modalities, and that includes the Finnish tradition of Kalevala bone setting, Reiki, psychology, shamanistic rituals, as intentional thinking and sensing practices. And that through those intentional practices or acts, our consciousness can enter into dialogue with the subsensorial. The acts, the healing acts evoke the dialogue with the subsensorial. Yeah. I wonder if you just want to say anything about that or even share an example of this. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the project in Sao Paulo, Biennale Nose, Ears, Eyes, was a, a sort of a first public performance. Well, I did do a couple of performances in public with healing as well, yeah. with the Galavala bone setting. There was this one in Buffalo. Yeah, with the orchestra. Yeah, with the Wooden Cities Orchestra. On stage, I actually gave a treatment while the orchestra played mm. played a, a score that had been created from them, mm. all the musicians mm. and the composers receiving a treatment from me. So there was wow. a, a kind of a, wow. there was a, this a sympathetic, empathetic musician wow. music happening at the same time. So literally, uh, as they saw me do the treatment, they could play the music while also remembering their their own treatment. That's beautiful. Yeah, Claire Schneider and. Uh, CSI curatorial projects. I mean, she really kind of pushed it and and helped me uh, create this. But I have to admit that after doing a, a, a healing session on stage, again, it's just too much for, for my system. Yeah. And in fact, what you did at the 32nd Sao Paulo Biennale with nose, ears, eyes, is you built a structure, you built a space yeah, two reasons why I needed a separate space uh, that was kind of an enclosure inside the pavilion was partly because of the air. I needed to make sure that uh, I can be in a space where I can breathe. The air quality in the pavilion. Yeah. And then the second reason, obviously, was to protect the space from any kind of... It's not eyes or or people in general it's that energy that you have mm -hmm. to protect yourself yeah. from yeah so you built a structure similar to what you were saying about the way you live there yeah i mean here in solbach i built a house that's made out of straw bales and clay because it's a breathing natural material mm -hmm. um, even if there are mycelium inside the clay inside the straw potentially even if it would start growing mold it's not going to produce mycotoxins because it's happy because it's in an environment that is not attacking it. Mm. And uh, the same goes for most natural techniques that you build in a way that doesn't fight or resist, but uh, creates a happy environment, mm. <laughs> literally a happy environment for, mm. for everybody. And in Brazil, there is a tradition of building with adobe techniques. And uh, so for me... It was important to build a space where I, I had certain sort of dimensions so that I could have the treatment bench there. I wanted to have these pipes that would go through the window from outside, from the leaves of the tree and from the ground to bring in microbes from the soil, from mm. the roots of the tree and bringing oxygen from the leaves of the tree. This air would interact with the hut that was made out of bamboo and actually not clay, but mud. Mm -hmm. Mud is clay that has organic matter in it. And um, why people tend to use mud rather than clay is that if you let that mud mixture ferment a little bit, the organic matter starts to fall apart and form these polymers, long chains of molecules. Mm. Um, that's what fermentation does. And it actually creates a much more hardy surface of the mud once it dries once the mud dries if it has these polymers in it coming out of the fermentation process it behaves more like a plastic so mm. you can hit it and it gives way a little bit and doesn't mm. break mm. Uh, clay is brittle yeah and that's why 
when you build adobe technique in in brazil you use bamboo lattice work and then you just put this mud on top and you don't have to use so thick a layer for it to work so it's flexible it's resilient and it's also breathable breathable porous and yet at the same time doesn't let all those bad entities and <laughs> that's true exactly and I, and again it's not that they wouldn't let for instance mycelium through it does but it provides an environment that is not making them react aggressively yeah and so you also invited humans visitors to the sao paulo biennale you invited them inside on a first come first serve basis right for mm -hmm. a healing treatment yep for four months wow for four months and those were subsensorial experiences let's say yes there were subsensorial sessions each person who would come in i would actually explain a little bit about the process and then i would also interview each person so i would know a little bit about where they mm. are with their bodies and their minds and depending on the person i would either start with bone setting or just with energy healing it really changed depending on uh, what came out of the the body and uh, at some point i just get these images i i just see colors and different movements sometimes i hear things uh and i i know they come from that person or from that moment mm. from that interaction mm. And then I just write them down or make paintings based on what I see. And it changes throughout the session. It changes a lot. So a blockage might resolve and, and dissolve. And then suddenly there's a completely different aura around the person. Mm. And so I would make quite a few paintings oftentimes throughout one session. So they would be long. They would be three hours, maybe even four hours long sessions. Yeah. Four hours. Yeah. Wow. So then... All these shifts and flows that you witness in the body and also the paintings you make as part of these sessions, these are other ways that you enter into dialogue with the subsensorial realm, right? They're part of, I guess, what you've called entangling and disentangling that is characteristic of your practice. I'm curious because you have talked about it or written about it anyway in terms of quantum entanglement. And I wonder if you would care or dare to talk about that. I did actually mention the quantum entanglement because I know that whenever you talk about anything of this sort, of course it resonates with, with the quantum mm -hmm. entanglement. Um, but I, for me, I won't be able to say exactly what happens when things happen. Mm -hmm. but I can make that connection and listen. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to go there and say that the source of this energy is from here or from there, um, or that this is what, this is the event that was underneath this reaction. I don't want to distinguish. I just want to have that dialogue. What it's evoking me is just this, I mean, I talk a lot on this podcast about, and it's a little research lab, just about attention and care and trust in what is not known and may never be known. So it makes perfect sense in that way of just 
having the awareness through the subsensorial to feel your way into all kinds of entanglements and all kinds of relations and at the same time allow them to be. Another healing modality that you've experimented with in recent years, it's from the Finnish word manaus, singing to or singing with, a setting oneself in vibration with the world and becoming a sympathetic part of the forces of the world through the voice. You also briefly were singing to the coronavirus when it was... Yes, that's true circulating out there in 2020. I wonder if you want to say anything about that. Yeah, it started with this um, situation that I had when I, I was studying Kalevala bone setting with the Kansan Lääkintaseura, which is a, an organization here in Finland who is the only organization who teaches this Kalevala bone setting. And they've collected the information from six practitioners who have been working as healers in this tradition with this transgenerational transition of information so their families have carried on this tradition from centuries so the tradition is many thousand years old and it had never been written down so this organization worked a lot with all of these healers and then eventually wrote it down made it into mm. a learning into a, a written knowledge mm. and some of the older healers who they worked with, when they gave treatments, they would sing. They would uh, do spells, sing mm -hmm. spells or, or word spells. And there's a deep tradition of, of different kinds of spells in, in Finnish uh, old tradition. So it was sort of acknowledged that, yeah, this was part of the treatment set, you know, that you used words. So I spent a lot of time just looking into this. What are these spells? How are they constructed? How do they work? And I also noticed in, in the practice that I was doing that if I at a certain moment would say something, you could really feel that wording, that voicing would really resonate through the whole body of that person. Mm -hmm. Or if I, for instance, just call out the name of the person and uh, how powerful that is if yeah. it's in the middle of a, a certain kind of treatment. Then I ended up in this uh, residency, a residency in Helsinki. And then we know already from before that I've worked with toxins, I've worked with environment. So the residency organizers did sort of mention that, look, there in, this residency is in the park, in the central park of Helsinki. And in this particular area where we are working, there is an area that used to be a shooting ground and there's a lot of lead in the land. Mm, so in yes. the soil. And, and, the and so for me, it was like, oh, lead, heavy metal. And lead poisoning uh, affects your cognitive capabilities. It makes you also very tired, mm. lethargic. And due to this sort of difficulties in, in cognition and then this sort of constant tiredness, it makes you aggressive. It's it's quite typical symptom of lead poisoning is that your behavior becomes more and more aggressive. It was all of these different things that came together and um, 
I had been thinking that it would be nice to work with people and sound. So this was now the moment for me. Uh, also because we also had access to choirs, volunteer choirs. Mm. So I was like, okay, now is the moment. Wow. And it was kind of interesting also because most of the people who I worked with, the, the volunteer singers, they were uh, retired women, some men. And when I spoke of Kalevala, because this was in Finland, everybody knew what I was talking mm. about. So it was actually a very kind of easy way to get them to, to come. Kalevala is not only the bone setting technique, Kalevala is like an epic story or... It's a, a collection of epic um, runes. It's an, it's, uh, and it's not just a, a hero story. It's, it's, it's a story of Genesis. It's, it's the whole world. It's a cosmology. There are 400,000 poems that have been recorded and archived in the Finnish National Archives. Wow. It's huge. But in any case, um, this was a, a very kind of good way for me to bring the people around this. And then I uh, worked with Heidi Fast, who did her PhD on healing through voice. Heidi really knows how to do these physical exercises where you can train the use of your voice um, with the entire body and mind evolving into it and, and really kind of bring it out as a, as a force. And you can direct it, right? You can direct it into the ground. You can direct it into a tree. You yeah. can direct it to... Another body, another yeah, person, yeah. another a microbe, a metal, for sure. I mean, mm -hmm. all entities have their own uh, resonances. Mm -hmm. As long as you find the resonance, you can make that other body or entity yeah. resonate with you. So then the premise, the premise is to heal the ground or to somehow neutralize the metal or... Or just finding, entering into relation with it, as we were talking about. The simple story would be to say that the aim was to, and here again, it's a direct reference to Kalevala poems. In Kalevala poems, there's one old man, a sage, that um, wins a contest. In this mythological world, in Finnish cosmology, men would actually compete by singing. Mm. <laughs> they would not fight physically mm. they would fight mm. by singing and in this mythological story uh Vainamoinen the the old sage wins over this younger contender by singing him into the soil singing him into the swamp wow but the meaning is deeper than just the hero story because the idea is that you can use your voice as a force to resonate with whatever it is that you want to address and with that voicing And here's the spell as well. With that voicing, you can sort of encourage or even demand, in Finnish cosmology, you can even demand that mm -hmm. this uh, entity return to its original state. So, yeah, if there's a disease, you, you build up a song where you address the root cause of the disease and then you address even the parents of that root cause and you you say that you have to return to your parents you have to go back to where you, you you are coming from because you are now in the wrong place you are now in a human body messing up the liver you know when you should be in the center of the earth like a heavy metal usually is so that's the word that's the Finnish cosmology spell 
using words, but also using a forceful voice. And I'm interested in that force, in that resonance mm-hmm. and how to, how to kind of direct it. So what do you think that force is exactly? Well, I mean, the whole idea of the singing is this energy of sound. I think it's more like um, that with the singing, you create the, the resonance and that resonance massages the matter that you want to direct the energy to. And that is the effect that can help the matter to find its own state, its its own sort of state of um, equilibrium even. Mm. So because when you were talking about in the Finnish cosmology that using the spell, you would actually be sending the element back somewhere, but maybe... It's more like a homeostasis. Yeah, because when we accept that we live in this completely entangled world, that we are, as Alexis Shotwell says, beyond purity, you know, that we will never get back to that state. We have this idea of a pristine beginning of a state, Mm. a utopia of equilibrium, Mm. homeostasis. But life is a process, so I don't think it ever is in that state that we sort of imagine is the, the pristine one. And in a way, this, this idea of um, returning to your origin, it's more about finding a place or a, a state that uh, no longer has a conflict with its environment. Mm. That's how I imagine it. Right, because... The point is, we were talking about the lead in the soil, in the ground in Helsinki, and that it's leaching into the ground, it's poisoning the the plants, it's potentially poisoning people who come into contact with it. So I thought that was the impetus for singing to it, but it's more mm-hmm. about getting it to kind of settle down. And as you were saying about the mycotoxins, Having mycelium in mud walls, it's not aggressive because it's in a happy state. So you're singing the lead maybe into a happy state. Yep. And I mean, when lead is in its sort of least volatile, more happy state, a state of homeostasis, it is in a heavy state that it is sinking into the ground where it usually is. So I was wondering about this in thinking about our machines and our devices and the minerals and metals that they carry could we could one through that singing through that vibration help them to somehow resonate back with the space from which they came as a way of perhaps kind of healing from the destruction of the extraction and the disconnection yeah, yeah. Almost like looking at it as a trauma of the separation of leaving the earth and mm, the soil and becoming yeah, something yeah. else, so, uh, becoming a tool, a device for somebody, some some mm. will. Mm. And so there could be a material trauma. I'm just thinking of the how molecules in matter bind to each other. And depending on what kind of binding also tells mm. about what the material is like. And and if if that somehow ruptured then it is literally a trauma so how to suture or somehow repair this matter that is sitting Mm. in a in a cell phone 
actually, I think if you find this right singing frequency, you can massage the molecular structure mm. and bring it back to its homeostasis, bring it back that connection to its sort of being in the soil. I really also like how you bring this up as a kind of a mirroring of how we always think about us humans being disconnected from nature and soil and that that's why we have come to this, this situation where we are uh, about to destroy our planet. Mm. But but now you're making me look at it uh, from the perspective of materials, matter, and that that, that also becomes separated and, and broken. Yeah. So, and and just like with this, I spoke about the molecular structure, how that is a kind of a very, very important part of the being of the matter. I'm interested in how matter also is a, is a code or pertains to codes. You don't have genes in so-called matter, but you do have resonance, you have frequencies. It is alive, it's vibrating with the universe. And so uh, the frequency is another kind of code. Like computer code, like algorithms, you mean? Yes, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a connection between computer code and singing as well. Not only am I thinking that it could be interesting to sing to the AI, but it would be interesting to teach it to sing. But in the way that we just go into the algorithm and, and find the way to make it sing itself. And the point of teaching it to sing would be to reach out to all in all the ways and to all the places that, in fact, we as humans can't reach. Well, there are different ways you can think about the, the healing there. It, it One would be that it could sing to heal others, right? Mm -hmm. But I also feel like the code itself needs to heal itself. It need, It's just like a matter that needs to suture its... Uh, trauma. Ah. And so the code needs to suture itself by singing because then it can vibrate and massage itself. And when it can be healed, it can also function in the world in, in a better way. I want to talk about the three years you spent at MIT as a mm -hmm. research fellow at the Center for Advanced Visual Studies, as an artist in residence at CSAIL, the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. You collaborated with researchers at the Humanoid Robotics Group. This was from 2004 to 2007. And um, as with other projects or ideas we've discussed here, you were exploring borders between the human and the non-human um, in this case, between the researchers and the robots that were the subjects of their research and development, and the emotional relationships that you witnessed between them. And you said that the project you did with them was about a transferred embodiment, that your research was probing the gulf between humans and machines while witnessing what happens when the two merge. Well... One thing is about the embodiment, transferred embodiment. And, um, 
very concretely, uh, interviewing Aaron Etzinger, who was building Domo, the humanoid robot. Mm-hmm. They didn't have legs, but had arms. So Aaron was focused on, on the artificial intelligence part, which he was definitely clear about that it's not there yet. This is about 15 years ago or something, even now even 20 more, years ago. Nearly 20. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, but what I noticed was that, I mean, he was very much also focused on how Domo, the robot, was able to understand three-dimensional world, uh, able to sense with its fingers, and how the fine motorics could be sort of tuned so that it could literally take a bottle and and pour yeah. water into the glass and not spill it. And but it was also definitely uh, focusing and and recognizing eyes, recognizing faces, recognizing facial features. Um, there was another project by Legion, Legion Aranda, Aranda, yes, um, which was more focused on on facial expressions and and was able to have conversations with visitors. Wow. Uh, and I looked at both of them, but specifically with Aaron, what was interesting to notice was that uh, as he was building his robot, it had the same dimensions as his body. Mm. And uh, I mean, uh, this was familiar for me when, you know, as a visual artist, you train by model painting or drawing Mm -hmm. models. And you realize at some point that you tend to always draw them as your dimensions. So that transference is happening immediately. And that transference is happening when the, the tech industries that have been around now for decades are longer and still today are dominated by certain kinds of mostly male bodies. Yeah, and white. Yeah. So that's what I was looking at. And another thing that happened, because I spent hours just looking and filming Aaron interacting. Like Aaron would go and um, work on the software, tweak something, then he would go back to Domo and then just grab his hands and literally dance with him. Wow. You know, feeling the pressures, like where does he pressure? Where does yeah. he push? If I push, does he, you know, how does he respond? Mm-hmm. So he was literally dancing and it could go on for hours and then take a pause and go back to the software and then go back. Mm-hmm. So I was filming all this. And as I was looking at them, and actually for me back in those days, I had recently finished this project, the New York Times project, where I had mm-hmm. made drawings of people grieving. I had realized that if I make line drawings that are simplified, I can actually see different kinds of relationships emerge. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I started, I used that same method uh, with Aaron and Domo that um, from the video, I would just make line drawings and then look at those drawings and be like, what's happening here? Mm. And then I made a different set of drawings where instead of Domo, it was a human. Mm. So I translated the uh, Aaron Domo into human robot and then into human human Mm. gestures. Mm. And then I looked at what are these drawings telling me in an affective way? What Mm -hmm. does it tell me about what's going on in this interaction? And that's when I, I could see a lot of different affectations, like simulated or not. Mm-hmm. Real or not, but still mm-hmm. there. And I mean, for me, if it has a meaning for you, like I said, 
then it has effect on you. Mm -hmm. So if you see this robot and this human interacting and on a certain level, it reminds you of some affectation relationship, then that has meaning. Mm-hmm. And that's the transparency in a way that I was thinking of. How mm. we see uh, emotional meaning, we see logic in these relationships. Mm-hmm. You were in the midst of your MIT experience, and I met you in the context of an exhibition at Storefront for Art and Architecture in New York. Yes, indeed. In 2006 called Fascia. And there was definitely a human machine or perhaps kind of like a cyborg-like feeling that was transmitted. And what you were putting your body through was a microcosm for like sort of the surface of your body, the surface of that building in relation to the city. And that was sort of a direct extension also of this kind of work with gesture or... Embodiments. Yeah. And you gave a talk at Storefront. You were talking about emotion and how when emotion is frozen into a monument or frozen into an image, it not only impoverishes the memory of what happened, but circumvents the possibility to to engage meaningfully with what happened. Yeah. And as you said, you very much explored that in the New York Times project, which was just a few years before in the aftermath of 9-11, that was about gestures of grieving and how frozen images from the media were triggering certain affects in readers of the New York Times in this case, and then liberating them in a way by instantiating your own body in those uh, same positions and performing them in public spaces in New York City. So this city being so laden with history and tensions and, as May Joseph wrote, digging into the city's emotive structure and forcing the hardscape of the vertical city to encounter its own repressed traces. Yeah, uh, it was a direct reaction to the situation after 9-11 when it was so important for everybody in New York. Well, at least I think everybody in New York. I lived in New mm-hmm. York back then. I did as well. Um, and, and it was just so important to to grieve, to come out yeah. and grieve together, sit in the parks and just be there. It was two weeks of complete sort of everything else just fell away. And it was about this magnificent, huge shock and grief. And it, it, it had to have space. And then within those two weeks, uh, George W. Bush uh, used it as an excuse to go out on a vengeful operation, more killing, more violence. The personal experience of that was really being violated and that we are not allowed to grieve. And that's when I realized that oops, when when is when is it possible for anyone to grieve without it becoming part of a political language and logic? And that's why I started to look at all those images of grieving, not only 9-11, but grieving in general in one particular medium. So that was New York Times. And and definitely discovered a whole lot of uh, connected meanings that form a pattern and, and highly, highly politicized, you know? So uh, this was definitely a media analysis piece. But at the same time, of course, once I then started to re-embody, re-enact those images of grief with my own body, Mm -hmm. another kind of process took place. 
Yeah. And as we have this conversation and record this, there is so much to grieve for in the world. Yeah. Genocide and geopolitical maneuvering and loss of life. And yeah. Yeah. And the media is again reinforcing a certain narrative, a certain story, yeah. a certain narrative. Yes. And appealing to a certain effective response. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing has changed. With all you know and have done since you were at MIT nearly 20 years ago, if you were invited today to the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, whether the humanoid robotics group or not, what would you want to bring? Who would you want to meet in that process? Who would I want to meet? Whoa. (laughs) You know, human and non-human. Do you have any thoughts just as a speculative exercise of what artificial intelligences could learn from the subsensorial or from your techniques of working with the subsensorial? Hmm. You know, I was head of Biophilia Laboratory at, at Alba University for a couple of years. So I, yeah. I learned a lot about microbes and uh, worked with uh, some microbiologists. Um, and so that part became very interesting to me once I had experienced this mercury poisoning. And at the same time as that was happening, I realized that back at MIT, where I wasn't working anymore, um, there was an explosion of biotechnology, biomimetics, bio mm. everything, bio. And I would be interested, yeah, gosh, MRI, fMRI, I mean, the, the whole sort of neurodiversity combined mm. with biology, mm. microbiology, that part, it would be so interesting to me at the moment. Um, but it doesn't take away at all the question of robotics because we are talking about nanotechnology. We're talking about nanorobots, nanobots, artificial blood. I mean, there's so much going on within that field that I think would be interesting. I mean, what if there was a humanoid robot that eventually would have mitochondria, like the, the yeah. bastard mitochondria that doesn't come from a matrilineage but comes from a science lab? What does that mean? Yeah. But then on the other hand, there is this uh, this being <laughs> that I have dreaded to touch, which is the artificial intelligence online, the sort of the new consciousness that is not a consciousness, but is a completely irresponsible teenager. Yeah. <laughs> and and mm-hmm. I, it's the same sort of unruly promise that became a monster it's a lot of new ways of information passing through and going in and you know affecting that is completely sort of an unknown I mean I think there are a lot of people who can say all kinds of things about it but I don't think Mm -hmm. anyone has really any means to know or understand what's going to happen and I am aware that people don't like this and it it might be a little unfair but I do see certain parallels being repeated whenever a new media uh, technology emerges 
it was the same with the radio. It was the same with the TV. Mm-hmm. The radio uh, servicing uh, fascism in mm-hmm. Germany, yeah. but also servicing uh, the Allied in their mm-hmm. war effort. So the radio played a significant role. Mm-hmm. But the, the person who was the first one to really use it in a smart, effective way was Hitler. Yeah. And then we have the TV generation and we have the Vietnam War. There was another kind of mm-hmm. flow. Obviously, uh, we also had uh, invasion of Iraq in 2003, where it was the first uh, fully mediated war. But for me, in my small way with the New York Times drawings and, and reenactments mm-hmm. of the Justice of Grief, that was mm-hmm. also talking about the media's effect. So I'm just standing in the sidelines and looking at this new form of media. Mm -hmm. And I have my concerns about what this is going to bring about. Well, the thing is, there will always be efforts to instrumentalize the technology in service to uh, the power structures and even more so perhaps these days, the corporate capitalist impulses. Yeah. As Juice Martinez said on the podcast, what if these Silicon Valley companies were not using AI to, in her words, cut their economic entrecotes, but actually approach them as an entity? That was actually going to be my next step. I was like, if I was to work with this, I would think of it as a being. And I would try to find a way to have a dialogue with that being, not with the information flow, but that being. Yeah. And I have no idea what that means, but yeah, it could be an interesting uh, exercise. Yeah. So as I mentioned in the introduction, you will soon be exhibiting alongside two other artists at the Pavilion of Finland at the Venice Biennale. Auguri. Congratulations. Grazie. Mille grazie. (laughs) And the announcement of your selection explained that The exhibition is bringing together three artists whose artistic practices are acutely informed by their embodied experiences of structural, environmental, and social imbalances in the world. And they also talk about performing, inhabiting, imagining, remaking worlds. Yes. And recently, together with the other two artists and the curators of the pavilion, you came out with a political statement against racism and discriminatory policies of the Finnish government. And the statement reads in part, art is not separate from society. Art has the ability to recognize and express the dangers of such policies, oppose them vehemently and reject them before their poison seeps deep. So we're back at poison. (laughs) It's not specifically about artificial intelligences, but it is about the role of art and how you see it. This group that is going to be in the Finnish pavilion next summer. Yeah. Can you name the other two artists? Vitha Saumia and Jenni Julia Wallinheimo Heinonen. They're the two artists. Mm-hmm. Jenni Julia is a disability activist. Mm. And she does these amazing, beautiful installations where she's really celebrating the bodily lives of her and her friends at the mm-hmm. same time as she's expressing this structural violence that is uh, mainly played out in situations of care 
in, mm. in the Finnish um, healthcare system. Mm. It's a very complex work. And uh, there is this element of celebration at the same time as there is this deep violence uh, in it. So it's it's a very, mm. very intense uh, work that she does. Mm. And Vidha Samya has an art practice that uh, speaks of embodiments in, mm. in different sort of how to describe that. Uh, in social situations where the the bodies become something beyond their own presence, you mm. know, something beyond their own will, like a, a lineup queuing for something mm-hmm. and how people do that and how they are pressed together and are representing something other than themselves at the same time as they yeah. are their individual yeah. selves. And, and there is this uh, beauty and this incredible fleshness of being mm. <laughs> at the same time as there's this vulnerability, this possibility of something not being in in their hands that they can control. So you're pleased with uh, sharing the pavilion with these two artists? Uh, exactly. The sensibilities are very aligned, even though mm. our works and practices are very different. Mm. Mm. Can you tell anything about what your plans are? <laughs> well, technically, I shouldn't. I, I'm not allowed to, right? But it's definitely going to be along those themes. The elements that I've been working with are still there. There's the idea of natural building materials and happy environments for everybody, also the microbes, and then mm. these healing sessions and paintings. They are all going to be present. Amazing. Pia Lindman, thank you so much for your time today and your generosity of spirit and the artistic pursuit that is meaningful, I know, for you, but also for so many others of us. Well, thank you for inspiring me to go into deep, deep thoughts. It's been very, very rewarding to me. Thank you. This has been AI Murmurings, a project of Slow Research Lab. The music you've been hearing is from The Resonance Canons, composed and performed by Christopher Tigner from his album A Light Below, released in 2019 on Western Vinyl. To learn more, listen, and purchase Christopher Tigner's music, please go to wiresundertension.com. To receive updates on this podcast, subscribe on your favorite podcasting app, or follow our Instagram. It's AI underscore murmurings. I'd like to thank our founding partners at the Australian Institute for Machine Learning and Sia Furler Institute at the University of Adelaide, audio engineer Fabian Reichle, and of course, the Resonance Foundation for their generous financial support. I'm Carolyn Strauss, director of Slow Research Lab. <laughs>